Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me this morning to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we are continuing our series of studies in what we're calling the Golden Chain, a study on the order of salvation, or the Ordo Salutis, as it's classically called in Latin. And there's that chart there in the back of the room on that little shelf where the Bibles are stacked. If you want to grab a copy at some point for your convenience, it's there for you. As we read through the Bible, we we come across these words like justification, sanctification, adoption, election, and so on. What do they all mean? Are they synonyms? Do they mean the same thing? Do they mean different things? Are they an order of events? And in what order do they occur? Do they all happen simultaneously? Well, the Ordo Salutis provides for us a framework of understanding because it helps us take all these different bits and pieces that were taught throughout the New Testament, throughout Holy Scripture, and helps us to make some sense of them. And the golden chain, as we've said, is that wonderful term first coined by the Puritan William Perkins. That term golden chain describes the order of salvation, how one link in the chain inevitably, inexorably leads to the next, that all those whom he called, he also justified. All those whom he justified, he also glorified. It shows, how, it shows forth how sure, how certain is God's salvation in the lives of his people, that all whom the Father has given unto the Son, all shall in no wise be cast out. Now we began, if you were with us, with union with Christ, and then we thought about election, we thought about effectual calling, that supernatural summons that comes in the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the word, and that call that brings God's elect out of death and into life. And then we thought about regeneration, the new birth, or conversion, which is really the other side of the coin of effectual calling. Remember, the Lord calls dead sinners to life effectually as his word goes forth so that they are born again to a new life and a living hope. And one of the things that we've mentioned along the way is that some of these these phases or these aspects of our overall salvation, some of them seem more theoretical. We don't experience our own election, for example. Some of these aspects are not really detectable to our senses. But their effects... The result of these saving acts are detected, just like Jesus states in John chapter 3. You can't see the wind, but you can feel it. You can detect when it blows. We can't see regeneration per se, but we detect a person's response, the inevitable fruit of regeneration, the result of being born again. We call that response conversion. Conversion simply means turning. And classically, Christians have defined conversion as turning from sin and turning toward Christ. Turning to Christ is faith. Turning away from sin is repentance. These two things always, 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 always go together. Here we have another coin. These are two sides of the same coin. Effectual calling, the other side of the coin is regeneration. We have faith, the other side of the coin is repentance. They are intimately intertwined. And as I mentioned last week, there's some debate over the years, which one comes first, logically? Faith or repentance? Does, does one have faith first in the gospel and then repent of sin? Or does one repent of sin first and then turn to Christ in faith? And the short answer is, everyone who truly repents believes. There, there are two sides of the same coin, as Professor John Murray argues in that wonderful book we've mentioned a few times, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. He argues that the two are so intertwined that he actually does not divide them at all, but he always refers to them with a hyphen, faith repentance. Faith hyphen repentance. Murray says this, It is an unnecessary question that faith 
The faith that is unto salvation is a repenting faith. And then the repentance that is unto life is our believing repentance. So these two really do go together. But they are two distinct aspects. And so we spent one sermon uh, on each exploring them. Last time, as I say, we looked at faith. We were in John chapter 3, Jesus and Nicodemus. And we looked not only about the teaching regarding being born again, what we call regeneration, but we also discussed the nature of saving faith. And so today, we'll consider some of the biblical teaching on repentance. And we'll look at perhaps the most classic text, the epitome of repentance in Scripture, Psalm 51. So, with that for introduction, let's look to God's Word. Let's read it, and then we'll ask for His help and blessing as we study it together. Psalm 51. This is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken And contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. Would you pray with me, friends? O Lord, give us eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word, out of your law this day. Help us to see and to know and to believe and to trust and apprehend these truths. And then by your Holy Spirit, as we we meditate upon the glorious truths of your word and the stunning beauty that it holds forth and the marvelous good news that it is for your people, seal it to our hearts, we pray. Help us this day. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. It has been said that the New Testament virtually begins and ends with repentance. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, way at the front end of the New Testament, and then Revelation chapter 3, almost at the very end, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, at the end of the New Testament, really bookending the New Testament, is this call to repentance. 
One scholar puts it like this. Repentance, even more so than the resurrection, is the most universal note in the New Testament. As we come to the dawn of the New Testament, before we really even encounter Jesus or Joseph or Mary, whom do we encounter? Well, we meet the great forerunner of God's Messiah, John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, as he's sometimes called. And when John the Baptist came preaching this message, what was it? Repent. His baptism, remember, was a baptism of repentance. And remember the first words, the first recorded words out of Jesus' mouth, the very first recorded statement we have from Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. The Lord says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And there are dozens of other examples beside. All of this to say, my friends, repentance is not a marginal issue. Sometimes, again, we've been thinking about how to extract these biblical notions, these biblical ideas out of the sometimes misused or abused cultural connotations that they've been embedded within. Sometimes when we think of repentance, we we hear the word repent, and the the image that comes to mind is this loud, ranting, pulpit-pounding fundamentalist preacher, or or maybe one of those guys walking around the street sidewalks with a sandwich board, he's ringing a bell, and it says, repent, for the end is nigh. Well, we have to do our best to get those unfortunate and those distorted caricatures out of our mind as best we can. Because repentance, biblical repentance, repentance rightly understood, is actually at the heart of biblical Christianity. One reason that it's so important for us to have a proper understanding of repentance is because of how broadly it is misunderstood by so many, even within Christ's church. How many times, how many times have you heard as, as, you're, as you're talking about the gospel, maybe you're, maybe you're having a conversation with a neighbor or a co-worker of yours. You're talking about the things of God. You're talking about Christianity. You're talking about the, the gospel. And, and someone resists. They hear what you're saying, but they say, you know what? I, I'm not good enough. They think, I must first clean up my act. I've got to get my life in order. I've got to get my life right before I have any right to trust in this Christ Jesus that you're talking about. Now that, what I just described, that is not the biblical doctrine of repentance. That is a perverse distortion of it. Here's a perfect example, and it comes to us from 18th century Scotland. You know, it's funny, finally, finally I get an opportunity. Sometimes people ask, you know, Sean, you're you're studying church history, you're studying Scottish church history, you're working on your PhD in Scottish church history. Does does studying these things ever actually help you any in your day-to-day work? Well, at least for this week, the answer is yes, finally I've got something. I've got an anecdote from the dusty old recesses of Scottish history, and it's all about getting the gospel right. Think with me. The year is 1717, and there's a presbytery exam. A young man is being examined by the presbytery in order to be licensed to preach, just like we do today in our denomination. It's the presbytery of Ochtherarder, and they ask him, is it sound and orthodox to teach that one must depart sin in order to come to Christ? Is it sound and orthodox to teach that one must depart from sin in order to come to Christ? Now, granted, that question, the way they phrased it, is incredibly clunky, and it sparked all kinds of controversy in the Church of Scotland. And the Church of Scotland General Assembly eventually ruled against it, which was unfortunate, because the answer to that question, friends, is no. It is not sound and orthodox to teach that one must depart sin prior to coming to Christ. Put another way, the presbytery was trying to get this man to say, there's nothing you need to do to clean up your act before coming to Christ. 
You don't need to forsake sin, or that is, stop sinning prior to coming to faith in Christ. Just come. Just come. That poorly phrased presbytery question is designed to avoid a danger. And the danger is distorting the doctrine of Christian repentance and turning it into a a sort of preparatory work on our part that qualifies our soul before we come to Jesus. No, the truth is, brothers and sisters, you don't need to clean up anything up first. Just come. Come to Christ. Come. You come. Warts and all. Sin and all. Run to him. Embrace him. Believe the gospel. Believe on Christ now, right now, wherever you are. I don't know if you're familiar with this hymn, but I love it. The words, the lyrics, some of the lyrics from it. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. That's the name of the hymn. We cannot, we cannot fix our life, friends, apart from resting on Christ for grace. Death to sin and living unto righteousness comes only as a result of receiving and resting on him as he's offered in the gospel. Rightly understanding repentance is crucial. We do need to forsake sin. We do need to turn from sin. We do need to abhor our sin and flee from sin. But the order in which we do these things is monumentally important. So when your friends tell you, I'm not good enough for this Jesus of whom you speak, the answer is, Repentance is not the warrant that permits you to come to him. Cleaning up your act, getting your life in order, getting your life cleaned up and together is not the warrant that enables you permission to come to him. You come to him because you know you're a sinner. You know you're stained with sin. You know you're defiled. You know you stand in a guilty, condemned state before his holy righteousness. You know it. So run to him. That's the only qualification you need. So fine, fine. Repentance is at the heart of Christianity. Repentance is not a preparatory work. And that's important for folks to understand as we share the good news. Fine. Well, what is the nature of biblical repentance? We know what it's not. It's not this work of preparation. So what is it? Well, three things for us to think through this morning. As we turn to the Locus Classicus, the great text on repentance from Psalm 51. One commentator said that there's three fundamental aspects involved in repentance. And we see them displayed in both Psalm 51 And also we see in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, and I'll mention that very briefly towards the end. We see here in Psalm 51 recognition of the heinousness of sin, and we see regret for the sin, and then we see a returning to the Lord. Three things, recognition, regret, and then returning. Let's think through those three things together for a few moments this morning. Biblical repentance... Biblical repentance, not the caricature of it, but biblical repentance involves, first, recognition. You see that in Psalm 51? You see the descriptors that David is is heaping up as he's describing it. Verse 1, sin is transgression. Verse 2, it is iniquity. Verse 4, it is evil. Verse 5, again, it's iniquity. Way down, verse 14, it is blood guiltiness. He's piling up these descriptors. Here is the sinful reality that festers in his own heart. He acknowledges, he admits, he owns his sin. And here's the important reality. We have not repented until we've owned our sin. We've not truly repented until we've owned, until we've admitted, until we've confessed, until we've enumerated, described our sin. You've heard of the the non-apology apology? 
There's a kind of non-confession repentance. It's a little bit trendy these days to say that we are all broken people. Maybe you've heard that verbiage. All people, all Christians are broken men and women because the effects of sin and the fall have ruined us and we suffer for it. And that's true, understood rightly. Right? Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. Another line from that hymn, come ye sinners poor and wretched. We are broken, but, and this is an important caveat that often gets ignored in the current uh, trendy buzzword language these days, we are not broken merely. To employ the, 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 the descriptor of broken, it suggests a kind of passivity, as if sin, bad things merely happen to us, they occur to us. We are victims of sin. We are, but that's only half the story. We are also perpetrators of sin. We actively commit sin. And Psalm 51 reminds us of that. Those of you who know your shorter catechism, you'll remember this. Question 14, what is sin? Sin is any want or lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. We are not victims merely of sin, brothers and sisters, but we are active sinners and we stand guilty before God apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. We must own, we must admit our sin, confess our sin, for we do sin. You'll notice here that David is clear that he is a sinner, not simply by his habits and by his actions, but verse 5, he is also a sinner by nature. Here's the important phrase that we must always remember. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners simply because we commit sins. It's in our nature. It's our predisposition to sin. It's in our spiritual DNA, so to speak. And so, therefore, we commit actions that are consistent with our nature. Let me give an example uh, of what I mean here. It's a little bit silly, but I suspect the boys and girls will appreciate it. Those of you who have dogs, those of you who have household pets, you might understand this. In our family, we have a dog, uh, allegedly. Uh, he's a useless beagle. His name is Max. Now, ordinarily, if you know anything about beagles, if you know anything about uh, hound dogs, you know that ordinarily, hound dogs would chase rabbits. Now, Max does not, but that's an entirely different story. But ordinarily, hound dogs, beagles would chase rabbits. Now, is he a hound dog because he chases rabbits? Is, is that tendency, is that proclivity, is that action what makes him a hound dog? If merely chasing rabbits is what makes one a hound dog, then it would seem that if I chase rabbits when I walk through the woods, if I get on the ground and walk on four legs and sniff things, would that make me a hound dog? No, of course not. That's silly. Rather, it's the other way around. Because of the way he is bred, it is his internal, instinctual, genetic predisposition. It's his constitution as a creature to chase rabbits. Because he is a dog, he chases Are we sinners because we sin, because we commit sins, because we do bad things? By doing the bad things, does that then constitute us a sinner? Or do we commit sins because we are sinners, because it is in our habitual nature outside of Christ, because it is in the constitution of our DNA? It's our behavioral wiring. Well, friends, it's the latter. Our sins, our actions are the outflow of our nature. Because the beagle is a dog, he chases rabbits. Because Sean is a sinner by nature, he commits sin. Verse 5, Behold, 
I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From the first moment life began, in the womb of his mother, at pre-embryotic cellular stage of development, he, David, stood guilty in the sight of God, and he admits, he confesses, he owns this dreadful reality. And further, and more specific, look at verse 3. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Now remember what, what he's done here as we read Psalm 51. He has committed adultery, David has. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba. He conspired to have Uriah the Hittite murdered. He has sinned against his people. He has sinned against his family. But ultimately, what makes his sin so foul and so damnable is verse 4. See it there? Against you... You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. The heinousness of sin is not measured merely horizontally. That is, what makes sin so awful is not simply based on how it hurts and wounds those around us. That is part of the heinousness of sin, is how it hurts and mars those around us. But the heinousness of sin, rather is to be measured by the holiness of God against whom we have ultimately revolted. That ultimately is what makes our sin so putrid and odious. The God who is holy, holy, holy before whom the seraphim shield their faces. The one who spoke earth and heaven into being. The one who melts mountains and totters the kingdoms with a word. The one who has every right, every cosmic right to command his creatures, do thus And we foolishly, wantonly, and arrogantly say to God, no. We must measure our heart against the holiness of God. We must measure our transgression, our sin against the holiness of God. That's the standard. And as we do, as David teaches us here, we'll see that we are not nearly so good as we thought. Not nearly so good as we like to think ourselves to be. So first, biblical repentance involves recognition. But secondly... Biblical repentance involves regret. It involves regret. God is holy, we are sinful, and the wrongs that are done against him are indeed wrong, and we own them. And so then, in light of these things, we see sin's utter bankruptcy and ugliness and futility. We we join with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, do we not? The good that I would do, I do not. And the evil that I would not do, that I find that I do. O wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? I hate the sin that festers in my heart. I hate it. There's a a sorrowful desperation there, isn't there? Verses 1 and 2, and here in Psalm 51, you can sense it. Have mercy on me, O God. Have, Have mercy. What a dark, what a horrific thing that I've done. I've sinned. And importantly, I think... Psalm 51 teaches us the difference between actual repentance and mere remorse. Those are two different things. Biblical repentance is not merely feeling sorry for doing something wrong or merely being sorry that you got caught. I knew a a Sunday school teacher at our church in Jackson, and she loved to tell the kids, biblically, love is not merely a feeling Love is an action word, and repentance is an action word. It's not merely feeling sorry. Repentance involves action. Remember 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9? Remember what Paul says? I now rejoice, 
Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful unto repentance. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. You see, when it comes to sorrow, there's the, the real thing, and then there's the counterfeit. There's godly grief that leads to repentance, that leads to a changed direction on the trajectory of your life. But then there's the, ah, I've, got, I've been caught red-handed. I wish I could have gotten away with it. I wish you wouldn't have found out. I guess I'll say something to make good on, for, for PR purposes, but man, this is inconvenient that I got caught. It's possible to get found out and to be sad that you cannot continue to indulge your sin. And that kind of repentance, I'm using air quotes because that's not repentance at all, that kind of repentance will destroy your soul, brothers and sisters. And we are being warned here to search our hearts and to be sure that we are truly, truly turning from ourselves and turning from our sin, turning to Christ. Sorrow that leads us to hate the ugly and odious and foul thing that sin is. And that our repentance leads to change and it leads to life and it leads to delight in Christ and not a mere counterfeit remorse. Biblical repentance involves recognition, firstly, and then regret, genuine regret, secondly. But then thirdly, there is a return. (laughs) The prodigal comes home, if I can borrow the analogy from the Gospel of Luke. You remember the the parable of the prodigal son, of course, Luke chapter 15. After the prodigal realizes what he's done, he's shipwrecked his life, he makes his way back. And the father embraces, and he begins to say, the child begins to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. And he doesn't even get to finish, because the father is already too busy shouting, Prepare the fatted calf! This son of mine who has been lost has been found. There's a return. He comes home. And do you recall... He does not come home to a reluctant, begrudging reception, but a joyful one. He comes home to the embrace of his father. Sometimes friends, we're guilty. We don't come home because we're so ashamed. We don't confess because we cannot bear to look at the realities that we find in our own souls. We have a view of God. We have a view of repentance, we have a view of sin and confession that is entirely distorted by one of severity and hardness that quite frankly does not match the biblical data. Actually, the biblical doctrine of repentance reminds us that there is life and joy on the other side. That's why faith and repentance are the fruit of the new birth. There's a natural outcome to repentance. And the natural outcome is when you come home, When you turn back to your God, there is grace upon grace. For this, he says there in Luke 15, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry, it says in the King James Version. The psalmist has determined to come. And that's clear in this psalm. You see there in verses 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 7 through 12, really. He pours out his prayers. This is what he wants. Purge me. Cleanse me. Verse 7. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence. Don't take your spirit from me. But instead, restore the joy of your salvation to me. He's crying out. That's how he's coming home. And that's how you must come home. 
whether it's for the very first time or whether it's for the 10,000th time. Now, I don't know. I can't read minds. I can't read souls. I don't have premonitions. I don't have anything like that. But I've got a good guess that there might be some of you wandering and indulging and maybe entertaining a sin, and it's a sin that you've entertained for a long time. It's found a corner of your heart. It's pitched a tent, and it's taken up a bit of residence there, hasn't it? You've avoided dealing with it. Maybe you're sick of it. Maybe it's one of those besetting sins that keeps besetting you, and you're absolutely sick of it, but every single time you find yourself caving to that sin, you think to yourself, maybe God is sick of you. How do I even approach God and ask him to help with this thing that I've entertained for 10 years, for 15 years, for 30 years? Psalm 51 tells you what to do. You do it crying out for cleansing. That God would take away your sin. And that he would create within you a right spirit and a clean heart. And restore, restore the joy of his salvation to you. And then in his soul, do you see there? In David's soul, he, having determined to turn back to his Lord, he has a confidence. A confidence in what the Lord will do with him. He cries out in verses 7 through 12, Clean me, clean me, clean me, clean me. I've got this sin. Clean me, God. Have mercy. And then what's he do in verses 13 through 17? He knows what's going to follow. He says there, if I can paraphrase, I won't be able to keep my mouth shut about this good news that has gripped my heart again. Then I will teach your ways to transgressors and sinners shall be turned to you. I won't be able to contain myself. I will be compelled to praise you. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Formal external worship. What's he getting at here? Formal external worship. In the Old Covenant, it involved the binding of sacrifices and the offering of sacrifices on the altar. Formal, mere formal and external worship devoid of any sincere piety of the heart is a vain, empty, and bankrupt thing. That's what he's getting at here. Formal, mere, mere formal, mere external worship devoid of any sincere piety of the heart is a vain, empty, and bankrupt thing. And it is a thing that God is not pleased with. There's a reason one of the mottos of the Protestant Reformation was life toward God, heart, and mind. Life toward God, heart, and mind. And that's what the psalmist is saying that he will do with a contrite heart. As he cries out for mercy, as he cries out for cleansing, knowing that God is pleased to give it. With a heart that's been visited by the convicting and restoring grace of God, he will begin to worship again for real in sincerity, in truth, in true communion with his God. It's also important to remember, and I was was having a discussion with one of you uh, even last Lord's Day, a wonderful discussion as we were thinking about these doctrines. And it's important to restate, many of you know this already, but many of you may not, and it's important to state at the outset, repentance is not just a one-time phenomenon. Repentance is not just a one-time phenomenon. Conversion, the new birth, that's a one-time phenomenon. Placing your faith in Christ savingly when you come to faith in Christ for the very first time, that's a one-time phenomenon. But you remember what Martin Luther famously wrote. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. He says that there at the outset outset of his famous 95 Theses. 
Christ intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. Brothers and sisters, how many of us are guilty of joyless worship, the mere external formality of it all? Is repentance something you should ponder today? Maybe you know Christ and maybe you've known him for a long time. But if repentance is a lifelong endeavor, maybe is repentance something you ought to think about today? Is perhaps, is perhaps the Lord calling some of us to turn from some sort of performance or some sort of self-reliance? How often we drift into that. Isn't that the basest instinct of the human heart? To drift off into a performance mentality, Christianity, by which we can earn, by which we can leverage and merit God's favor? Have some of us drifted into that kind of self-reliance, an aloof Christian commitment? Do we need to turn again into utter dependence on the Savior? If there is a joyless heart among us, perhaps the Lord is summoning you now. Perhaps he's summoning you even now. Come home, repent, turn to me, and I stand there awaiting you like the Father's arms to meet you with matchless mercy and matchless grace and a welcome. So turn again. And again, and again, and again, and there as you turn, and as you run to him again, 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 you will find grace upon grace upon cascading grace. Praise God for the doctrine of repentance, and praise God for the great work of mercy that it yields in all of our souls. Bless God for his word to us today. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. Truly, we ask you, please create in us a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within us and enable us to know anew the joy of your salvation as we turn in repentance and turn in faith to our Savior. It's in Jesus' name that we do ask these things. Amen.